0: So, it's really nice to be here with you in your new space. When I spoke to Gil, I said, um, I heard that uh, you needed a substitute, and he said, no, we don't call it that, we call it a guest speaker. And when he gave me the instructions, I had in my mind, you know, the old site, and he told me how to get here, and I thought, how great to be in uh, the new space with you, so uh, congratulations (laughs) that's really the the, um, feeling I had walking in was how wonderful um, for all of you and all of you as a um, or for each of you and also all of you as a community Um, I'm trying to think what to say about myself I am um, a um, old friend of Gil and Tamara and I I'm a long-time Zen student. Um, I lived at uh, Green Gulch Farm in Tassajara for about five years, some time ago. Um, I started practice in my early 20s. And now I live in San Francisco with my husband, Eugene Cash, who I know some of you here know. And um, I work uh, for a company that does trains people in, in professional coaching. And um, some of that work has been kind of covert Dharma teaching for me. Um, So all the people who come through our programs get introduced to uh, meditation practice, for example. So I get to work with a lot of people who are taking on meditation practice for the first time, being introduced to it for the first time. And um, this year I've also started my own um, business in addition to working for this company in San Francisco, um, called An Appropriate Response, which is after a, a Zen story. Um, and it focuses on working with people individually and also doing some group work and more teaching that's more overt Dharma teaching. So it's great for me to get to come and talk with you, um, since that's been the aim of my, or sort of aim and direction for me this year in 2002. So I wanted to talk with you today about practice in the context of what it means to be fully human. And um, I know that for me, when I first came to practice, there was some hope that I would get out of some things, (laughs) like being myself and the things that I didn't like about myself, and that I would somehow get better and improve and so on. And um, I have had a mixed relationship with the idea that um, the only way out is through, that really what practice is about is becoming more and more myself and um, being able to express that more and more fully. And so in reflection about my own practice and also with the um, numbers of people who I get a chance to work with now, I've been thinking about the, um, the phases of practice or um, sort of phases or uh, aspects of what happens for us as we en- engage in working along the path, walking along the path, and engage in what it means to be fully human. So what is that? And um, since Buddhism has all these great lists of threes, you know, everything comes in threes, I came up with three things (laughs) that I want to talk about. Um, So the first part of waking up, waking up to being fully human, um, is uh, related to the first noble truth. So the First Noble Truth, as many or most of you probably know, was the very first thing they say that the Buddha said when he woke up, which was, um, there's suffering in life. There's difficulty in life. There is dukkha. So suffering is one translation of dukkha, and there are others. It can mean dissatisfactoriness or anxiety or stress or just the inability to settle in and relax. To what's happening. Now, I don't know about you, but I thought this was kind of a strange thing, that this was the first thing that the Buddha said after he woke up. So imagine you wake up and then he could have said anything. Why this? And also it seemed strange to me because it seems so obvious. <laughs> Why would the Buddha point to something that seems so clear. Um, I have a little bit of a sense of, well, duh, right? There's suffering in life, yes. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to catch on. It doesn't take more than trying to sit still for 35 or 40 minutes in one spot to catch on that we have some difficulty as embodied beings. Right, we, we know that, so why would he say that? Why would he say that as the very first thing that he wanted to let people know after he woke up? And my sense is that the Buddha was saying this, not just so much as description, but also as prescription. That the Buddha was pointing to suffering because even though it's really obvious that it's everywhere, um, we don 't always turn toward it, do we? <laughs> In fact, for the most part, we turn away from it. So the Buddha was offering this pointer, this doorway as a way to um, invite us into this really important aspect of what it means to be fully human, which is to turn toward the suffering that's there, not because we like it, not because it's a good thing, not because we have to make more of it than there already is, but because it's true. Because it's, it's a part of what it means to be a human being living on this particular planet at this time. And you may have noticed that it actually creates more suffering when we turn away. Um, but that doesn't mean it's easy <laughs> to turn toward. Our suffering to turn toward our difficulty, and part of the way that I think, um, or part of the reason that the Buddha points to this um, orientation toward suffering, is because as we turn toward our suffering, that's how we cultivate compassion. That's where a compassionate heart is born. So the word compassion means to suffer with. Compassion means come, means with, and passion as in in the passion of Christ, as in suffering, difficulty. So when we turn toward suffering, we are able to cultivate a compassionate heart, a kind of kindness. And I know for me, this was... um, I'll say first, for the Buddha... um, like perhaps many others of you, and certainly as was true for me, um, he grew up in a set of circumstances, and particular family environment, in which they tried very, very hard to protect him from turning toward being aware of even having to deal with suffering at all. So his father um, sort of locked him in the palace and showered him with all kinds of worldly pleasures and tried very, very hard to prevent him from being upset by any of the inevitable human sufferings that are part of our life. There's a great story about that the king would send gardeners out into this beautiful flower garden that he had created around the palace. Um, So he'd send them out at night with clippers to cut all of the dead flowers off and dead leaves off of the plants because he didn't want anything to upset his son. So um, it didn't work because eventually the Prince Siddhartha, who was a curious kid, uh, got out. He made his way out of the palace and um, he uh, he saw what are now referred to as the four heavenly messengers. Old age, he saw an old man, he saw a dying man, no, he's an old man, a sick man, a dying man, and a monk. And the, it was a revelation for him because as he, he asked his driver, who are those people? Because he'd never seen anyone who was old, and he'd never seen anyone who was sick. He'd never seen anyone who was old, and um, uh, who he'd never seen a corpse before. He'd never seen any of that. And his driver told him in response to his questions, yes, that's the fate of all of us. It's true for all of us. And the the young prince realized that um, he didn't want to turn away, that he wanted to understand how to live um, as a full human being, including old age, sickness, and death, not sheltered from them. And that was the beginning for him of his departure from the palace and the uh, initiation of his own spiritual path, his own spiritual journey. So this turning toward suffering rather than turning away, is a pivotal piece in um, opening us to opening the doorway to the path, to the practice. And I know for myself, when I first came to practice, I was very perplexed by the suffering that I had uh, inside me, and then I saw in the people around me, and then I saw in the world around me. And what was really perplexing to me even more was that nobody really wanted to talk about it. So I had lots of questions and lots of concerns and was responded to most often with, you know, now, now, dear, or, shh, let's not talk about that right now. Let's, let's, let's stay positive, shall we? Let's not be negative. And so I was confused because there was this phenomena, this whole aspect of human life that seemed so real and poignant and painful to me. And yet, nobody seemed to want to talk about it. And when I first came knocking on the door of um, Zen Center, I came carrying all my questions, all of my concerns. Why is there suffering? Why is there illness? Why is there violence? Why is there death? I really wanted to know. And for the first time, the, the sort of strange people I met in the building bald women and men in long black dresses, they said to me something that no one had said before, which was, we don't know, but we really respect your questions, so come on in and sit down. And I thought, ah, finally. No one trying to take it away. No one trying to make it better. No one trying to give me a one, two, three kind of answer for what felt like really profound human issues. Um, So they invited me to come and sit down, and I did. And um, that, for me, also was the beginning. There was also a quality in the people who I met there who, though my mind had very (coughs) strange and interesting judgments about the people who I saw, given how they appeared and so on. There was also something about the quality of their presence that really drew me in. And I didn't really know what it was, but there was a quality of kindness that I hadn't really encountered before. And it was only later that I began to see that the kindness was born precisely of this willingness to turn toward suffering, this willingness not to turn away, not to try to make it better, not to pretend it away. And I remember very early on, particularly a few people who I met there, I thought to myself, whatever it is they've got, that's what I want. I want that. So for me too, this turning toward suffering, this willingness to be with suffering was an entry point was a beginning and was um, the first steps, if you will, of um, allowing myself, allowing others, allowing the world to be what all of it is. So allowing myself, in this case, to be fully human, allowing other people to be fully human, to incorporate uh, a wider circle of what that means. So in some ways I've been thinking that the path itself is a process of maturing our compassion, of purifying our love, of taking our initial innocent, wide-eyed wish to help, to turn and face suffering and to, to <laughs> make things better instead of worse. Um, That the path, once we enter there, once we cultivate that aspiration, that we then proceed by maturing our compassion with wisdom to take this initial aspiration to be with what's difficult and mature that to become an appropriate response. The ability to, because it's one thing, you know, to have the aspiration to be helpful. And it's another thing to actually be helpful, right? <laughs> if you're like me anyway, you may notice that the great aspirations are great aspirations, but that doesn't mean there's necessarily so much skill there yet. So, how is it that we mature our compassion with wisdom? And that seems to me to be part of the this, this second aspect, the second phase of our work along the path. And the hint about what it means to cultivate this kind of wisdom um, comes from the response I got from the, the, the people at the Zen Center when I first came, which was, we don't know. So there's a phrase in Zen that um, I got on one of those, you know, those calendars that each, each day has a little saying on it? I always tend to kind of think, oh, how silly or trite those calendars are. But um, one day, my husband took a a page of one of those calendars and tore it off and put it on my desk. And on it, it said, a Zen saying. And I immediately thought, oh, right, this is going to be really silly. And what it said was, um, knowledge is learning something every day. Wisdom is letting go of something every day. And I thought, oh, that's great. And I've been using that now for some time as a way to talk about the movement from knowledge or the accumulation of information to wisdom, which is the release, the letting go, the willingness not to know. So not knowing has a very high place, in, um, uh, particularly in Zen, but really in all Buddhist teaching. Um, and what is it that we are supposed to not know or what is it that we're aiming to let go of well mostly it's our very fixed views our sureness about who I am and who other people are and how the world is because it you may notice I certainly notice that it's hard to be fully compassionate and helpful when I am locked on to my view about how things are, or how other people are, or how things ought to be. So this letting go, this willingness not to know, is um, critical in helping us increasingly uh, expand and widen our capacity to respond appropriately with um, kindness, with compassion to the suffering that is everywhere in the world. there's this great Zen character in Zen lore um, named Bodhidharma. Some of you may have um, seen pictures of Bodhidharma in the, there was a show at the San Francisco Museum about Zen and there were all these great Sumi paintings, um, many of which were of Bodhidharma. And he has this great face (laughs) with this kind of big bulgy nose and furrowed brow and um, very intense looking, Um, big bulgy eyes, an earring, and um, he's big, his face is big as opposed to many of Japanese paintings which portray things as being very dainty. So Bodhidharma is is supposedly the person who's responsible for bringing Buddhism from India to China. And the Chinese called him the red-haired barbarian because apparently he had red hair, which was, most people in China didn't have red hair, and because um, anyone outside the central kingdom was considered a barbarian. But he was a very highly esteemed barbarian, (laughs) Bodhidharma. Um, And at some point in his travels, he had an audience with the emperor. And, um, In the audience, part of the dialogue was the, um, the emperor asked Bodhidharma, what is the highest meaning of the holy truths? They always ask these kinds of questions. They never ask like, should I have oatmeal or cornflakes for breakfast? They always ask these really right to the heart of it kind of tough questions. So what is the highest meaning of the holy truths? And Bodhidharma said, emptiness, nothing holy, which was a pretty good answer. But also a little bit of a slap in the face to the emperor, who was, you know, Mr. Holy, right? So he was saying, Not even you get that kind of um, kowtowing from me. And the emperor, in response, apparently, said, Who is it who's standing before me? Um, with perhaps some heat, he said that. And um, Bodhidharma towering above him, this sort of Huge red haired barbarian said, Don't know. And this don't know, bodhi- Bodhidharma's don't know, has sort of rung down through the ages. Um, it's meditation instruction, it's instruction for how to live your life, it's instruction for how to cultivate wisdom. Now, Bodhidharma's don't know wasn't kind of like duh, it wasn't that kind of don't know. Bodhidharma was um, not a slouch. <laughs> This was a guy who traveled by foot all the way from India and who, the story is that the reason he's always portrayed with those big bulgy eyes is because in his sort of vehement pursuit of the truth, in his vehement attempt to wake up and understand who he was, um, he cut off his eyelids so that he wouldn't fall asleep when he was sitting in meditation. And the the story goes that his eyelids fell to the ground and became the first green tea plants. (laughs) So this was Bodhidharma's actual great kindness because he created these green tea plants out of his own kind of vigor and, uh, I don't know, maybe obsessiveness, I'm not sure. And therefore monks in future generations didn't have to harm themselves to stay awake. They just got to drink delicious green tea. So I also, I am a big fan of green tea. I love green tea. And when I scoop my little green tea leaves into my pot in the morning to make green tea, I think about Bodhidharma and his um, sacrifice. And also Bodhidharma and his um, willingness to face the emperor and perhaps the emperor's wrath and say, don't know. Not don't know like, I don't understand the question, (laughs) but don't know like, Really, check it out. Who are you? Who am I? That was his pursuit. That was what he wanted to know, and he was willing to let go, to not know, in order to find himself. So Bodhidharma is... um, He's good for telling stories. And you may see... um, There's little Bodhidharma dolls. There's uh, these Daruma dolls, they're called, and they're like those... um, what are those? Kind of blow up things that you punch and they, they fall over and get up. So they're like that. There's little Daruma dolls. He's sort of become a, um, a toy. But um, before becoming a, um, a toy, he actually had something pretty important to say. <laughs> Bodhidharma and his don't know. So when we let go of knowing, when we let go of our sureness, of our fixed views of who we are and who others are and what the world is, there is some space. There's some freedom. And there are the seeds of peace. This is maybe easy to see these days when we look around the world at various, very strong views about what's right and what's wrong and what's evil and know you're evil know you're evil well those are very fixed views and it's out of those kind of fixed views that tremendous suffering and violence is born and it's out of our willingness to let go to release to not know that we have a chance to meet ourselves and other people and the world with spaciousness with peacefulness with openness. So this is a critical element in our maturing our compassion, in our, in our ability to mature and transform, and transform by being with the difficulty that, again, is inherent in our human life, in our shared human life. There's also some difficulty in not knowing. <laughs> I, I myself like the idea of not knowing, but it, when it comes right down to it, I actually kind of like to know. And I like to be sure, and I like my ideas, and I so there's a little resistance there, maybe, to letting go, because uh, we're afraid. If I don't know, then what? When, when I was a kid, I, when I was a teenager, I had a number of repeating <coughs> dreams. And one of the repeating dreams was one that I called the elevator dream. And actually, I was thinking I was driving down here, it's not really an elevator dream because the dream was that I was in an elevator shaft and there was no elevator. <laughs> but still, I think of it as the elevator dream. So the dream is I'm falling down this elevator shaft, and there's very sh- uh, sleek uh, walls, so there's nothing to hold on to. And in the dream, I'm falling, falling, falling. (gasps) So as a kid, I would have this dream, and I would be lying on my bed on my back, slept on my back with my feet this way. So I'm falling, 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 and in the dream, I would put my feet down to try to (laughs) find the ground, and there was no ground, (gasps) and I'd wake up. Over and over, I'd have this dream. This is the the downside of not knowing. (laughs) This is the fear that gets uh, pulled up when we step into this, what I'm portraying here is this wonderful thing called letting go or being willing not to know. So it's not so easy. And recently I came across um, this poem that, that described to me some of um, the difficulty of not knowing, part of it is fear, and part of it, for me at least, is a certain kind of awkwardness. Um, there's some, some kind of disorientation. Stepping into not knowing, especially when I think I'm supposed to know or I have important decisions to make, it's difficult. Um, and not knowing, I feel kind of like a gangly teenager, like, wah, ah, ah, like that. And I don't like that. So I found this poem from Rilke that describes that, but also gives a kind of surprise answer, um, which I want to read to you. And the, um, the poem is called The Swan. And he says, This laboring through what is still undone, As though legs bound, we hobbled along the way. This is sort of what it feels like when you're in not knowing and you're trying to find your solid ground. As though legs bound, we hobbled along the way, is like the awkward walking of the swan. And here's the answer. And dying to let go, to no longer feel. The solid ground we stand on every day is like his anxious. Letting himself fall into the water which receives him gently. So when I read this poem I thought, oh in my dream I thought I knew what was at the bottom of the elevator shaft. That's why I was so scared. I was sure that if I hit the bottom that would be the end of me. But what if that's not the case? What if what's at the bottom of the elevator shaft is not solid ground, not the solid ground that I think I want so much, but is actually water. Ah. So this gives both a description of the awkwardness of not knowing, but also the possibility that when we don't know, something new, something completely surprising can come uh, into possibility. That, again, the ground that I think I want may not be ground at all. How about that? That's what gets opened when I'm willing to not know. So the last piece that I wanna talk about is um, sort of the opposite movement from this letting go and not knowing, which is very open and spacious. Though we we may have some resistance to it, it's. Like expanding the circle, open, open, open. The flip side of that is this teaching that is a little bit different, which is, um, this is it. Uh, Where not knowing leaves us with infinite possibilities. This is it. Like this life, your life, my life, right here, right now, this is it. Some of you may have seen there's a comic a while back with two monks. One is this sort of old, grizzled monk, and the other is this kind of peppy-looking, wide-eyed, young monk. And the <laughs> caption says, as the old monk speaking to the young monk, nothing else happens. This is it. So this is sort of part of the wisdom of um, maturation, of getting older, is that we discover... Uh, that all of our reaching, all of our grasping, um, all, of the, all of what it is that we think we want is actually right here. It's not someplace else. So there's, there's a famous Zen story about um, the great teacher Yun Yan who is on his deathbed. This is, some of, this is some of a hint about why we know that this teaching is a harder one. It maybe comes later on down the path. So, because this is coming out of the teacher's mouth as he's dying. So the teacher is on his deathbed, and his prized student, Dengshan, comes to him and says, I always think this is very brazen of this guy to say to his dying teacher, but he comes in and says, after you die, I always think, well, he's not dead yet, give him a break, but after you die, and people ask me about your teaching, what should I say? So he's already sort of taken the mantle, right, from his teacher, even though he's not dead yet. and eagerly trying to be of some service, right? To wanting to make sure that he gets, he gets it right. And uh, I always imagine his teacher looking up at him from his bed, and he says, just this is it. Just this. Nothing else. And I imagine this young monk, the younger monk, sort of, oh, that teaching kind of lands us, funk. Uh, in right where we are right now. I, I have a client who I've been working with for some time, a couple of years now, who has really done an amazing job in transforming her life. And um, it started with her turning toward her suffering rather than away from her suffering um, and continued in her cultivation of not knowing of being willing to let go of all of her expert opinions and views and so on. And she was someone who was really quite known and uh, she was an expert in her field. And so it was not so easy for her to let go of, in her work world, her views and opinions, but also in her life, her views and opinions. But as that started to happen, she got happier and happier, And recently I had a conversation with her in which she was reporting to me about all of the things that had happened in her life. And I felt so happy listening. And then at the end of this description of all of what had happened for her in her life, she then said, so here's a list of things I want to work on next. She gave me this laundry list. And, um, And on the one hand, I thought, well, how great. I mean who would who who wouldn't like to have a student who is so eager to just keep working on themselves and take on the next thing? But in her case, I kind of stopped short and I said, "You know, you just described this amazing transformation that's happened in your life. Maybe this is it. Like maybe there's not twelve other things you need to do in order to and it stopped her short, and she said, "Oh." Ah, and she actually said on the phone, you know, when you say that, I feel my whole body relax. (laughs) So um, what if this is it? What if, as if it weren't the case, what if this was actually your life? (laughs) And there wasn't some gold ring to get, right? No pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, no, but actually right here, right now. And like not knowing, this is, at least for me, this is a very difficult teaching. In some ways, it's the thing I love absolutely the most about Buddhist practice, is that, oh, I can just be myself. But sometimes I don't like it that much, because I think, this? So it goes back and forth. Sometimes if I'm having a good time, I think, yeah, this is it. And other times I think, this is it? No. not No possible way. And I don't want to accept that. Me, with all of my inconsistency and the ways I'm not nice to people and how lazy I am as a meditator and on and on and on, I can go there. This? No. But that's the instruction. So how do we do that? How do we really let ourselves fully settle into just this? Just, just, just without, you know, this is more of the, um, the uh, second noble truth, which is about clinging or grasping as the source of our suffering. So this is an instruction that helps um, cut that off, that confronts it very directly. But whatever little bit of, yeah, self-improvement project I've still got going, it, oh, What if I were just right here, right now, with all of you? What if all of you were just here, right now, just as you are with everybody else? And there wasn't, then what happens? Sometimes for me, it feels a little shocking, wow. And it's again, it's not so easy because we want to keep wanting to improve. So how do we navigate between this sort of opening of not knowing and this kind of closing down? There's, the phrase in Zen is like, like a snake in a bamboo pole, this kind of tight teaching of just this. This is it. Some years ago, I went to a ceremony. In Zen, we have lots of great ceremonies. So this was a ceremony called a Shosan, a ceremony where a teacher in a public venue um, has a dialogue with all of the <coughs> students, and everybody gets to ask a question in front of everybody else about some aspect of their practice. And this, in this particular ceremony, it was the end of a two- or three-month um, intensive retreat. And so the people who were there were getting ready to leave the retreat, leave the temple and go back into their lives. And someone asked this really beautiful, poignant question about how, as this is coming to a close, how can I keep my heart open? And um, the person who was in the teacher seat said to the person, is this a heart? And they said, no. She said, is this a heart? They said, no. She said, right, this is a heart. We open, we close. We open, we close. So accepting ourselves this what Dogen called radical acceptance of things as they are, means accepting that sometimes we don't like just this. Or sometimes we're not... We don't want to turn towards suffering. Or sometimes we do have fixed views and opinions. This radical acceptance means accepting all of it. And when we accept all of it, that's the maturing of our heart. That's the maturing of our compassion. That allows us, that builds in us the capacity to respond more and more appropriately to each thought and feeling to each person, to each situation that we encounter as we go, as we move through the world. So I'll just close with uh, a poem from Dogen. Zenji, who captures this in a sort of beautiful, poetic way. Um, He says, realization, waking up, being fully human. Realization is effort without desire. It's wholeheartedly being exactly who we are without trying to be something else, without trying to get something else. So realization is effort without desire. Clear water all the way to the bottom. A fish swims like a fish vast sky, transparent throughout, a bird flies like a bird. So the big prize that you get, the big prize of practice, is not that you become something else, not that you become bigger or better or smaller or smarter or faster or more efficient or whatever it is. The big prize of practice is that just like a fish gets to be a fish and a bird gets to be a bird, you get to be you. That's what it means to practice in a way that allows us to be fully human, that allows us to drop deeply into just this, just this, just this. So let's sit for a minute. Realization neither general nor specific is effort without desire. Clear water all the way to the bottom. A fish swims like a fish. Vast sky transparent throughout. A bird flies like a bird.